At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Well, I hope you are having a happy Palm Sunday. This is an exciting and meaningful week of time in really the church global as we remember that Jesus came to a city to save it. Though that city and as a substitute really that humanity was going to murder him. But that wasn't all of the story. So we are excited to walk through this week and make it to Good Friday and Easter. And really, we've spent the last seven weeks right in the middle of Palm Sunday week. We've been in a series on the Olivet Discourse where Jesus gives really his last formal sermon before he were to die in our place for our sin. And this moment happens. Jesus had entered the city. The crowds had shouted Hosanna. Loved that uh, reenactment, that demonstration of that moment as we opened our service. And he entered the city and he spoke and he healed and he was in the temple interacting with the people and the teachers and the Pharisees and really getting everybody angry except those who believed in him. And then on the way out of town for the evening, walking right outside the city gates to uh, the mountain next door, the Mount of Olives, Jesus references the temple they had just left and tells his disciples about the things that are going to happen next, the destruction of the temple, and goes on to describe the signs of the end of times. We spent now seven weeks, and we're going to wrap it up today, following that communication. And we love that idea. What's next? What's next? We, we love thinking about, talking about, wondering what is next. We spend seasons of our lives aching for and excited about that next thing, that next season, that next journey, that next relationship. Even I mean, this last year, it's just been a trial by fire of what's next, right? Whether that was going to be wildfires or pandemics or murder hornets or boats that get stuck in canals because they don't know how to stay in the water. You know, like, it's just been like a what's next kind of year. Today, as we look at the last moment of Jesus sharing some of what's next, um, we're really going to see the purpose Jesus had for his disciples as he gave hints to the future. And so I want to encourage you, grab your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. You're going to want to be there as we journey through really about 15 verses worth of content. And in Matthew 25, Jesus essentially communicates that what happens next is far less important than whose you are and what you're doing out of that. What happens next just isn't as important as whose you are and what you're doing. See, 
We love to focus on what's happening around us, what's happening to us, what's next. But we ought to focus on what's happening within us, what's happening from us. What will happen next? I mean, that's far less important than what Jesus has already done. Have I repented and put my trust in him? What's happening in me? And then what, what's happening next? I mean, that's far less important than what am I doing to tell about the good news and demonstrate that generous kind of love. What ultimately matters is our identity in Jesus. And a, what always we'll find accompanies that are actions for Jesus out of that identity. So when we look at scripture, particularly at our passage today, we're going to see that our actions do reveal our identity. That thing going on on the inside of us always flows into what's happening from us. And so, sometimes the best way to see whose we are, what our identity is, is to see what we do. Our actions reveal our identity. So let's read together God's word. And Jesus ends his Olivet Discourse like this. He says, when the Son of Man comes in glory. Maybe I should start that over. Because he says when. And not if. And not if somehow. He says when the Son of Man comes in his glory. All of the angels with him, he will then sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Just as even as we get started in this passage in this moment as Jesus shares the first thing that stands out to us as Jesus wraps up his conversation is that Christ Jesus will one day gloriously return. Jesus is coming back. That's worth parking on right here. Jesus will one day gloriously return. Unlike his first coming which was a gift and which was miraculous and which we celebrate every year at Christmas, uh, which was modest. You know, Jesus comes to earth as a, a baby, not a, a warrior, in a squalor of a stable, not in the, the trappings of a palace. He comes meekly and dependent on humans, not in power and authority. Uh, unlike his first upside down surprise kind of arrival which speaks in powerful ways he will come back in power with authority with glory when he returns it will be the most public and powerful event in history he's coming back the church says amen to that gently scold us. This passage starts in what is going to matter most. It's reminiscent of John chapter 5 where we see that the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. And in that climactic moment we get a glimpse of the time that will come where justice will decisively be brought to our history. 
It's justice that will happen. It's good. It's right. Finally, it'll all be made well. The only problem with that is we're the bad guys in the story of history. We're the rebels. So we should be a little bit afraid about what's happening here or we're missing it. We'll get to why we don't have to fear. But Christ is coming back and he'll return with judgment and separation of all people into two categories. Redeemed or rebels, his children or his enemies. In this parable, in this metaphor, he, he shares sheep or goats. Now, we may not be incredibly familiar with sheep and goats, but I think it's an apt metaphor. Throughout scripture, in fact, sheep are seen as an image of God's people. It's good because like sheep, you know, uh, people aren't that smart. (laughs) Just saying it. We act foolishly on our impulses that we're enslaved to, that are not for our ultimate best, don't we? Like sheep... We're valued and loved. Like a shepherd values and loves his sheep. And part fitting God's blessed, redeemed people to sheep is appropriate because they need a caretaker. These are things we can all relate to if we're honest with ourselves. And in a time and in the place where Jesus was talking, and really still true to this day, shepherds would pasture their flocks of all kinds of different animals together. And there would be a time where you need to separate them to to do whatever chore you needed to do that day or to move them to a separate pasture for one another. And in that moment, it takes a discerning eye to take two animals that look very similar in shape and size in a time in history where they hadn't been bred to the standards that they have today and when they've been out in the mud and the weeds for a season. It, It takes a discerning shepherd's eye to know this is sheep. That is goat. We need to separate them apart. Jesus is saying that those who have been born again and those who are still in rebellion against him are all right now part of the same pasture. We're all in the same world. The wheat and the weeds in the same field, as Jesus says elsewhere. But one day a shepherd king will return and separate everyone into two flocks. And this isn't like the thing that warms our hearts to hear, but it's good news. Because believers, sheep, those who have repented and trusted in Jesus, we get to look forward to that day with expectation and celebration. Jesus, our shepherd king, is coming back to make all things right, and he has made us right. So we rejoice. We'll finally be made new. Forever, perfect, all things right. But if you're listening today and you don't know Jesus, this is a sobering reality. You may be sitting here and look like his child, look like a sheep, but Jesus knows the identity. We may be able to not tell the difference, but the shepherd can. We can try to fit in and look the part. 
We can even deceive ourselves at times, but Jesus will ultimately judge the authenticity of our identity in him, redeemed or in rebellion. So why does that matter? And, and how does he describe the difference? That's what we see next. Jesus continues... He places the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And verse 34 says, The king will say to those on his right, the redeemed, the blessed, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. Here's, here's a description he gives to describe what these people looked like. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. This is a, a long list of care for the Messiah, Jesus. But, but Jesus describes that those listeners would have been confused. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you, maybe even period, but when did we see you hungry and feed you or, or thirsty or give you drink? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Like, I, I don't remember choosing to do any of those things. And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. One camp. But he separates. And in the other camp he says, then he will say to his left, depart from me. The others he welcomed into his kingdom. This time he says, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. He goes through the same list. I was a stranger. You didn't welcome me. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. They're equally surprised, Jesus comments. It's not an active choice on their part to reject Jesus. Perhaps they'll answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? you know, they're assuming of, of themselves, of course we would have if we had seen you. He will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. So far we've heard Jesus talk about two types of people, saved and not saved. One group is blessed and will inherit the kingdom of the Father. They're righteous. And the other group are not blessed but in fact cursed. Jesus, the shepherd king, separates the two. Gathers his own and dooms the rest. What's the difference between these two groups? According to Jesus, the shepherd... The made new people have an identity in him. And that identity in him led them to feed and care and clothe and visit others. His 
the least of these, his brothers, the family of God, the least of these, the people who didn't seem like they had anything to offer back in return. Those who were not believers did the opposite. Both groups were consistent with what was really going on in their hearts. The Bible is filled with a picture of what God does want his worship to look like, does want justice to look like, does want kindness and love to look like after his heart. The books of Amos and Micah and Luke and James and more all repeat the need to assist the poor, assist the hurting, care for those who have nothing to give us in return in our communities and within the church family. In fact, Isaiah 58 communicates in in a powerful passage the kind of worship God desires, the kind of life God wants to see lived out, and that is to break the oppression of injustice, to share your food with the hungry, to invite the homeless, to find shelter in your own house, to provide clothes for those who don't have adequate protection. That kind of you first, me last, how can I serve and protect and help and care for and love even someone who doesn't have anything to return to me, especially within the family of God, our brothers and sisters, that's the natural behavior of someone who's experienced the soul satisfaction in God's love. That's just how someone who's been made new by God's love loves. And whether they knew it or not, Jesus said, in caring out of your identity, you are caring for me. Your identity as my child was proved by your actions. Your works revealed your faith or a lack of repentance. To say it plainly, what Jesus was saying is that faith without works is worthless. And in our cultural tradition, this is something we need to say because sometimes we over-communicate the opposite out of a fear of not being misunderstood. Because don't get me wrong, we believe that our identity is given by Jesus alone. His work and life and death and resurrection for us in our place for our sins. It's by grace through faith alone as we've seen revealed in scripture. That is how we are made new. We don't get to earn it. Even the best of our righteousness, apart from faith, is worthless. But faith without works is also worthless. Because it's not faith to begin with. Authentic faith is proven. It's ultimately realized. It will always result in love and mercy. This discernment, this separation narrative... It doesn't ask the people, did you accumulate enough good things for other people in order to earn a place on the good team? Instead, what the shepherd is really highlighting is, what kind of person were you on the inside? What was your identity? And I can always tell that by how you lived. That's the name tag on the heart change. Identity is always the issue. Are we people characterized by love and mercy as evidenced in Jesus' kingdom? Or are we characterized by really a concern ultimately for our own benefit? And the point is that 
Jesus makes clear a person can't pretend to claim identity as his child without also evidencing the acts of obedience of a transformed life. This is exactly what Jesus' half-brother James says in his book. In James 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? Brothers, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, we, we love you. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. And I, he goes on to say, will show you my faith by my works. And that's not a works-based way to be made right with God. Acts of mercy aren't done as a means to an end. They're an expression of the love we've been made new by. If we've ever truly experienced the love of God, we will in turn express the love of God to others. Always. And that matters because we have to be willing to state then that a person isn't a disciple of Christ on the basis of their family or their tradition or thinking and accurate theology. One is a disciple by truly, authentically placing your faith in Jesus alone, which will always result in compassion and obedience to the will of the Father as he leads in ways that will look like upside down in a right side up world, in ways that will look like radical compassion. Because faith without works is worthless. And this isn't something I... Really, this isn't something that we don't already know. We know that our identity is always truly shown by works. Because you've, you've lived life for a little while, right? You know that I couldn't accurately and authentically claim to love my wife, Ashton, if my actions and behaviors didn't say the same thing, right? It, it wouldn't be love if I said Babe, I love you. But then the way I lived demonstrated that all I cared about was my own interests and my own hopes, my own dreams, and my own needs, and serving myself. Who I would really be loving in that situation, despite my language, would be myself. I could say I loved her all day long. It'd be a lie. I loved myself. I'm, I don't know about your relationships, but man, isn't that the natural pool of our lives apart from Christ? To supernaturally love someone else is an act of God, sign of grace. Kids know that too. A man, a teacher can know all about how to teach. And, and guys, give teachers a break this year. Like it's, it's been a tough one, but a teacher can know all the right content, but if they don't really care about the kids, care about their students, and care about helping them to make the journey of understanding themselves, they're not actually a good teacher. They just know stuff about a content area, right? It, that can apply a hundred times over in a thousand directions, and so it is with our faith. We can say we have faith. We can fool ourselves to think we have faith, but our actions are the proof we ought to do well to pay attention to that proof, the fruit of our lives. 
The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John 3. Little children, again, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before God. Church, we're not a works-based faith, but we ought to be inspecting the fruit of our works to see if we have faith to begin with. We've been journeying through in this series several catechisms expressing doctrine as something we understand to help us grow in the understanding of our faith. And I think question 32 of the New City Catechism perfectly aligns with this very idea. I'll ask the question. I want to invite you to respond with me in the affirmation of the truth. Since we're redeemed by grace alone, through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? Answer with me. Yes. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his spirit, so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, so that we may be assured of our faith by the fruits, and so that by our godly behavior, others may be one to Christ. We must obey God's word and do the good he's prepared for us ahead of time to do. I don't know who you came with today. Sometimes when we talk about behavior or actions or works, it's easiest and simplest to think about the actions and behavior and works of someone else in your life. And truly, there's a reason to do that and to fear and to pray for the identity in someone else's life to be made like Christ in such a way that evidence is fruit consistent with that. But we're missing the whole point if we're not applying the reality of Jesus, our shepherd king, to look at our lives and motivate us to live in constant, not perfection, but per repentance. The Holy Spirit won't make your life perfect tomorrow, but he can move you to repent today. And then when we live in that cycle of repentance and trust and obedience, our life begins to display the fruit of works, of love and compassion in ways that are radically new. Maybe we need to ask this question. What does my faith work like? What does my faith work like? Is it a faith that's active, that works, or is it just a set of traditions and facts that somehow, I would argue, suspiciously hasn't changed the way I live? Genuine gospel faith will always result in genuine gospel living. And anything less than that must be repented of or viewed suspiciously. Because true faith works. Not only our hearts changes our hands and our feet the way we live. Church, I just want to pause in the middle of a really difficult question to wrestle with in our hearts and just praise God. 
for story after story and moment after moment over this past week alone of ways we have seen in our faith community fruit and works of love and compassion that demonstrate life change that doesn't make sense outside of the work of Jesus. I praise God for his faithfulness there. Story just in the lobby ahead of this service. Uh, someone was share with me of the way their life group community, their, their love, their compassion, their kindness have transformed their journey right now, their hardship right now. In ways, one, I think poignantly they expressed, have made them feel so unworthy. Because isn't that true of all of us? To, to just think, I don't deserve this. And when it comes to the love God showed us, of course we didn't. And so isn't that our joy to kind of share that kind of love to others? And, and the next thing they expressed was this. It's the love that I've been shown and the care that I've been shown in this season has taught me how to forgive where I needed to. Isn't that a sign of God at work? Guys, this is how God works. By our faith and work. The question matters. What's my faith work like? Because the implications matter. Jesus ends. Maybe the last, what you might consider a formal sermon before his death with this phrase. These those who were living in rebellion, those who didn't demonstrate an identity that caused them to love radically, these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, identity made new by God, we, he saw that characterized in a life filled with care and love for others, the righteous go into eternal life. Church, Jesus communicates that our faith determines our destination. Throughout Jesus' words in this message, there's been two types of people, the blessed and the cursed. And so it makes sense that there's two destinations, eternal life, eternal punishment, entering the kingdom, entering eternal fire, being with God for all of eternity or being separated from God for all of eternity. And our faith, our identity, being made right with God is what determines our eternal destination. And what we know is what verse 31 says, the Son of Man is coming in glory. So when the shepherd king comes, he's going to separate everyone. When Jesus looks at our life, what identity does he see? It's maybe the most important question we could answer. Do I do you have new life in Christ? Maybe the best way to know that is, has the gospel changed the way I live? It's not an overnight journey, but the Spirit is at work unless He's never brought us to life in the first place. Or suspiciously, we've been somehow quenching and drowning out His activity in our hearts by refusing to obey. Do we have new life? In Christ. Something we share here every week, I hope, faithfully in one way or another. And using language that I know our kids' ministry uses every single weekend. I want to remind us of the way that we can have that identity made right before God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' work for us so that we could know him. Ultimately, God rules, and for him, the scripture says, all things were created through him and for him. 
but we sinned. And our sin separated us from that holy God who is an authority. So we have a problem, and Jesus is coming to serve justice to that problem. But God provided. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him could be saved. Jesus gave his life for us so that we can be welcomed into his family. That's the beauty of the story of Christ. What matters then is how we respond. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what Romans 10 tells us. Authentic identity change forever when authentic faith is expressed in the work Jesus did for us. And when God does and begins that work, he gives us new life, which looks like the Spirit at work, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly ambitions and attractions and lust, and instead pursue holiness, righteousness, and godliness in this present age. Jesus lived and died in our place for our sin, and our response is always then to repent and believe. And when we do, when we do, we become a child of God. We are given a new identity. We're known not by how good we tried to be, but how right he declared us and enabled us to demonstrate pieces and glimpses of that kind of love and goodness for the rest of our life, empowering us with the Spirit, with supernatural gifts to be able to do that. And what happens? What happens when we live that kind of way? I think what happens is that whatever's happening next suddenly is no longer as important as what we already know will happen next. Jesus is making all things right. And we have confidence because we know we've been made right with him. And so we live not in light of what we can get out of this life, but what we already have ahead for us in the next. Desperate to show radical life altering, upside-down kind of living so that others can know that same message of love. Because anything gained in this life is lost. But ultimately, the only thing that matters is the beauty of the gospel. So as we close, I just want to ask us all and encourage us all to, to spend a moment in our hearts and our minds asking God to remind us of the life that we have from him so that we can live that kind of life for him if we've trusted in Jesus. Giving, asking God to give us clarity about the reality of our identity with him. And if you look at your heart and life today and say, I don't know that I can say for certain God has made me new, I want to plead with you. To approach God in honesty today. And we'd love to help you. We'd love to talk with you after service. To help lead you through an understanding of the way you can know Christ. As your king and shepherd forever. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart. And get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.